we are turning in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 2, and we're beginning at verse 12. But first of all, um, a bit of an introduction to this passage, just to get the context and remind ourselves of what exactly is going on here. But, first of all, indulge me in a little bit of hypothetical thinking. Imagine that there are two pastors, if you will, two preachers, and we'll call the first one Pastor Joe. Pastor Joe has a very successful Christian ministry. Travels the country preaching at churches which are packed out because they come to hear him from far and wide. He even sometimes speaks at stadiums and they all flock to hear everything he has to say. Crowds turn up eagerly awaiting to learn from his teaching. And occasionally he publishes some books and they're always bestsellers so everyone buys them, listens to him. He's even had the opportunity to speak to some presidents and prime ministers, and it just seems like everywhere he goes, he enjoys the blessing of the Lord and his ministry. Recently, he's heard of a church that's been struggling, and so he's endeavoured to help that church, and so he, he went to see them, and he told them to embrace the victory that is theirs in Jesus Christ, and if they really want to succeed in the Christian life, if they follow his advice, then they will flourish, and they will grow into a massive, thriving church and enjoy the life that is theirs in Christ. But then there's another pastor. We'll call him Pastor Paul. Pastor Paul is not quite so successful as Pastor Joe where Pastor Joe is winsome and gets everybody around him. Pastor Paul, everywhere he goes, he seems to generate controversy and has a lot of enemies on his tail. Many of the churches that he's been involved in, some of which he has been involved in finding, are absolutely riddled with problems of one kind or another, and it scarcely seems there's a church that doesn't have problems that he's been involved in. And when people see him, they really decide that he's not very physically impressive and there's not much about him that they find particularly interesting. And for sure, he's experienced some success in gospel ministry, but it's clouded over by the number of problems that he faces. His ministry is just so beset by problems that many people just prefer to keep him at arm's length. That's the problem then that... Uh, that this poor Pastor Paul has to put up with. And imagine we were faced with some problems at Bencham or in our own Christian lives. Who would we turn to? Would we turn to the very successful Pastor Joe or would we turn to Pastor Paul with all of his problems? I'm sure that given the chance, we would all turn to the successful preacher, the successful servant of Christ, we wouldn't look to the constantly troubled, humble, unimpressive preacher. And we tend to favour those people that seem to be experiencing the outward blessing of God in their lives. And that's then the problem that faces the Apostle Paul. Paul had brought the gospel to the church at Corinth and had seen many of the people there brought to know Jesus Christ. And the Corinthians had become somewhat disenchanted with him because to them he represented a ministry that was weak and ineffective precisely because it was riddled with so many problems. And at some point after writing 1 Corinthians, Paul hears about trouble in the church at Corinth and he has to do what he describes in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians in verse 1 as a painful visit 
And Paul makes this painful visit to the Corinthians. And while he's there at Corinth, he faces some opposition from someone or some group of people. And we don't know very much the details of that. It was so difficult, that painful visit, that Paul decides that for him to stay at Corinth would simply exacerbate the problem. So he beats a retreat, he leaves Corinth, and he heads back to Ephesus. When he's at Ephesus, we read that he sends a letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 2 and verse 4, he says that he writes to them out of great distress and anguish of heart. And he sends this letter, presumably through Titus, who takes this letter to the Corinthians in order to try and see what response this letter will produce. Eventually, Titus returns to Paul and he tells Paul that the Corinthians have been won over by what Paul has had to say to him. It has produced repentance. But he warns Paul that there are some super apostles at Corinth who are trying to undermine Paul's ministry by saying that it's ineffective, it's weak, and that really Paul isn't much to look up to. He is not apostolic material. Which then leads Paul to write this letter, 2 Corinthians. And what Paul is then doing in this letter is trying to explain to them why his ministry is faithful and successful Christian ministry. What Paul offers us in this letter is a kind of litmus test of what it means to serve the Lord faithfully. Recently, we got some litmus papers for Ezra and Isaac in order that they could go around the house dipping their litmus strips into water and other liquids in order to see whether it's an acid or an alkali. And depending on the colour it changes, it tells you whether it's an acid or not. And if it goes very, very dark, then you know it's a very, very strong substance. What Paul offers here in 2 Corinthians is a kind of spiritual litmus test for Christian ministry. What is faithful Christian ministry? And the reason why he offers it is because it's very easy to be taken in by what is outwardly successful, what the super apostles were trying to promote here at Corinth, and actually to ignore the humility of the Apostle Paul and think that that's weak and ineffective. So then we come to Paul's defense of his ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. And we read what Paul has to say to the Corinthians. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and find that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So Titus hasn't yet returned after he's taken this sorrowful letter to tell Paul how things have been. And so he says in verse 13, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, as those sent from God. 
Chapter 3, verse 1 then says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. As we're looking at this passage then, in these first few verses, we get a glimpse of the suffering and difficulty that Paul was experiencing in verses 12 and 13. Paul had left Ephesus, where he had been for some time, and had gone to Troas to preach the gospel. So as you move up, so if you imagine there's the Aegean Sea, and on one side you've got Corinth, on the other side of the Aegean Sea you've got Troas, and Paul's moving northward up the coast, uh, moving northward up from Ephesus to Troas. Remarkably, when he gets to Troas, he finds that there's a door opened for the gospel. That's what Paul says here. Exactly what that was, he doesn't explain to us, but there's some remarkable gospel opportunity that Paul has uncovered here. And yet, instead of being able to make full use of it, he is so burdened by what has been going on at Corinth that he simply cannot have any peace of mind, as he says. Titus still hasn't arrived back from Corinth in order to communicate the good news that actually the Corinthians are responding well to his exhortations. So he's worried. In those days, of course, you didn't have text messages, and even letters had to be carried by person. So it took a long, long time for any news to actually travel from Corinth to tell Paul how things were going. And so he's there at Troas, and he's burdened. And so he says that in verse 13, he had no peace of mind. Realizing then that Titus has missed the last boat of the season, which would take him from Corinth across to Troas, Paul continues up, up the land to the top of the Aegean Sea to Macedonia because he knows that if Titus is coming, he's going to have to go through Macedonia and he'll be able to meet Titus there. He doesn't want to continue on to Corinth because he doesn't want to arrive at Corinth and discover that actually things are made much worse by his presence. And so he waits at Macedonia and he picks up his account then in chapter 7 and verse 5 where he explains what happens when actually Titus arrives. But while he's waiting there for Titus in Macedonia, we read in chapter 7, verse 5, that even there he had no rest, but was harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. And you've got this poor apostle who is just so deeply troubled by everything that's going on in his ministry that he can't get peace of mind to share the gospel, either at Troas. He can't get peace of mind to rest in Macedonia because of opposition from outside and fears that are going on within him. And we encounter this image of the Apostle, man, Apostle Paul of a man who is embattled on every side. And with all this trouble and turmoil, people are looking at the Apostle Paul and saying, you know, what kind of ministry is that? 
That's not living the thriving Christian life, is it? He's not having this successful Christian ministry. And these super apostles are doubtless pointing at Paul and saying, look at him. Look at him in his humility and his weakness. Is that really apostolic material? Is that what faithful Christian ministry looks like? And so Paul has to give a response. He has to defend his ministry. And so he outlines his first test of true Christian ministry. And he says that faithful servants of Christ are those who are led as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And so he says in verse 14, thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Unusual expression and has been translated in different ways. Some translate it as with the King James Version as saying that God causes us to triumph in Christ. The idea being that we are in the triumphal procession with Jesus Christ. I mean, it could be, that's what Paul's saying, but that would be an unusual thing for him to say if the whole point is that actually he's leading this embattled, suffering Christian life. It would be unusual for him to say that actually he's part of the triumphant procession. And actually, when, you, when grammarians talk about the verb that's actually used here, it's used in such a way that actually it's best translated as being led in Christ's triumphal procession. Not part of the triumphal throng, but being led. And then we've got to ask, what does that mean? In the first century... Roman generals would often go away to different parts of the empire and defeat lands which had not yet been conquered. And so, of course, they came to Britain and they, they made their way through here all the way up to Hadrian's Wall where they stopped and they couldn't get any further because of those nasty Scots. Um, but that was one of the things that they did. They would go and uh, conquer different parts of the world. And then on their return, the Roman general would parade through the streets of the city and ahead of him would go the conquered captives. The kings who had been defeated would go dejected through the streets. The, the king's peoples would go uh, tied together uh, and be led through the streets, many of them to their execution at the end. And as they went through the streets, the temples would be open, celebrating this mighty victory. They would be burning incense in celebration to the gods of the triumph that had been accomplished. And Paul then uses this vivid image to think about his own situation in life. Because he realizes that he had been an enemy of God, as indeed every one of us were. Enemies of God through our wicked works. And Paul is very conscious of the fact that he had once opposed the Lord Jesus Christ and persecuted the church of God. But now Christ has conquered us. Now Christ has defeated all of his enemies and is in this triumphal procession which God has organized. And we are not triumphing, rejoicing that we have done something great. This is Christ's victory over all of his foes. Of course, Paul isn't trying to portray Christ as some kind of wicked tyrant that's just gone around um, being brutal to people. Rather, Christ, through his suffering and death on the cross, has triumphed and has won Paul by his love. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, Paul will say that the love of Christ constrains us, it compels us. That can be translated as the love of Christ has taken us captive. 
The idea is that we have been taken captive by Christ, not because of his brutality, but because of his triumphant love and death on the cross. And indeed, Paul has not been taken in this victory parade to be sentenced to death, but actually to take part in a parade which leads to life. But even now, he's suffering. Even now, he's being paraded through humility, through suffering, as one who has been taken captive by Christ. And this then means that in Christ's triumphal procession that he's part of, it doesn't look like success. It doesn't look like victory as he's being led along. It looks like defeat to many who look on. And it's Christ who is victorious. It's for his glory. And Paul then goes on to say that as Christ leads us in this triumphal procession, he spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. And Paul imagines his message as this smell that goes everywhere where he goes. Sometimes, like I said, incense would have been burned along the victor's parade and they would have smelled these smells in praise of God as they were being taken through the streets. And Paul, he takes this kind of image and he says in verses 15 and 16 that God has made them to be an aroma of Christ both to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. And it produces different reactions depending on which group you're actually part of. To those who are, to those who are being saved, they smell Christ in Paul's ministry. They see him being led in this triumphal procession. They see his suffering. They see his humiliation. And they smell the work of Christ in his life. They smell something beautiful about that and realize that Christ, through his love, has taken Paul captive. But to other people, they smell Christ through Paul. And it's disgusting. They see him being led in humiliation and suffering. And to them, that just smacks of the way Christ lived his life, suffering and defeat and shame. And to them, everything about that is disgusting. It's not victorious. It's not good. It's not lovely. It's disgusting. And they want nothing to do with it. And that aroma of Christ to them brings death rather than life. And to bear such a responsibility, says Paul, to actually carry about in his person the smell that brings either life to those who belong to God or death to those who are perishing is too much for him. It's more than he can bear. And he says, who is equal to such a task? He's not up to this job of carrying about this smell of life and death. But Paul, he doesn't pursue this task simply seeking worldly accolades. He doesn't pursue it just trying to get something out of life. He pursues it with sincerity. And so he says, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. This isn't a kind of ministry that he's just doing to get something out of it. He says, on the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. And this is a God-given ministry. And so he will discharge this God-given ministry with integrity and sincerity. So what's Paul's point in all of this? He's simply saying that a faithful Christian ministry will not look like triumphant ministry in the eyes of the world. 
Instead, a faithful Christian ministry will look like following Christ as his captive to his love. And our lives will look like the life of Christ. And a faithful Christian ministry will bring glory to Christ and his victory and his glory rather than to us. I'm sure you've seen those pictures before of images which look like one thing when you look at them and look like another thing when you look at them from a different way. There's a very famous picture, you can show it to you afterwards if you haven't seen it, of an image and when you look at it first it looks like a woman's face, a young woman's face. But then you look at it a little bit more closely and actually it looks like an old woman with a a fur coat around her. And it's one of those images that you look at and depending on how you look at it, you see something different. And it's the same with other senses as well. Some smells smell absolutely delightful in one context. In another context, they smell pretty disgusting. I love the smell of cumin, for example. If you know that smell, beautiful, fragrant smell. But if that gets stuck into your clothes, then it starts to smell quite disgusting. And Paul makes a similar point with the aroma of Christ that he carries about with him. To some people, it smells wonderful. It smells of Christ. They see Christ in Paul's ministry. And to other people, they look at Paul. They smell the the aroma of Christ and it's disgusting they want nothing to do with it because it's humiliating and disgraceful we've got to ask ourselves the question about how we evaluate a Christian ministry when we look at other servants of Christ do we judge them by the standards of the world how many people they can attract how many best-selling books they can write how many high positions they can occupy So do we evaluate the ministry of servants of Christ through their earthly wins and gains? Or do we see it, as Paul would have us see it, through how Christ leads his people through suffering and defeat and shame and humiliation to glory that awaits them in the end? A suffering and humiliation through this life which ultimately leads to Christ's glory and praise because he is the one that actually sustains us. After saying this, then Paul moves on to his second mark of faithful ministry. And that's the fact that the mark of a successful Christian ministry and a faithful Christian ministry is not one which is based on self-accreditation or the accolades of other people, but is demonstrated through the mark of the Holy Spirit writing in people's lives. Transformed lives are the mark of faithful Christian ministry. And having been sent with God with this wonderful ministry, as he says, he then has to worry about whether or not the Corinthians will think that he's trying to to give himself accolades, to, to try and say to them, you know, look how great I am. And so he has to say in verse chapter 3, verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Of course, in some contexts it's okay to commend yourself in the sense that when you meet people for the first time, sometimes you have to present your credentials. And presumably when Paul went to Corinth, he had to explain to them, look, I'm an apostle sent by Jesus Christ, and it's okay in that sense to actually commend yourself, to present your credentials. But Paul's asking why you would have to do that again, as if that is somehow the measure of his success. 
And he increases his ridicule by suggesting that maybe he needs letters of recommendation from them or to them, as if he needs to get some other important people, super apostles perhaps, in order to verify his ministry and say that actually he is a great apostle. Uh, But he discards such an idea and he says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. It's interesting that he says that they are written on on his heart and presumably in the hearts of his companions, Titus and Timothy and so on, those who care for the Corinthians, they are written on their hearts. That is, they are so full of love for these Corinthians that they don't need to carry about a letter validating their 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 apostleship, apostolicity. They've got the Corinthians as demonstration of the the work that has been accomplished through them. The Corinthians are demonstration of their ministry. And so he continues in verse 3, You show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not in tablets of stone but in human hearts. And if they really wanted to see proof of Paul's faithful ministry, then they only had to look at themselves. They only had to see how they'd been transformed from pagan idol worshippers into devoted worshippers of the living God in order to see that actually this was a transformation which could only be accounted by, by someone which was faithfully serving under the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they were going to doubt Paul's faithful ministry, then that would involve calling themselves into question if he had been responsible for working in their lives so that the Spirit of God transformed them, writing in their hearts, and they were then calling him into question, well, what did that say about them? Uh, who were they then? And again, we've got a real tendency to resort to shallow and superficial evaluation of people, much like these Corinthians. Perhaps these super apostles at Corinth were trying to undermine Paul's credentials, but what credentials did they have? Maybe they had got some other people to say that they were great apostles or or great servants of Christ. Maybe they were trying to endorse themselves by the qualifications that they had, the people that they had associated with. But for Paul, mere words are not enough. The true test of Christian ministry has to be the change that it produces in people's lives. And I think this also speaks to us about the problem of celebrity Christianity. It's good if you've been spared from that, but at various times in my own life I've fallen into that trap of identifying certain Christians and you think, my, they are just the epitome of what it means to be a faithful Christian, a faithful servant of Christ. You see the crowds gathering around them, they organize events, they write books, they produce songs, and you're like, this, this is the pinnacle, this is what I'm aiming for. But for Paul, the true test of Christian ministry is not in how many people you can get around you, how many accolades you can get from other people, but in the transforming work of the Spirit of God that takes people out of darkness and brings them into light to worship the living God. But even here, Paul has to issue a caution. He's not trying to pretend that he's a notch above everybody else, as if somehow he's discovered the secrets to a successful Christian ministry and through his initiative and clever ideas he's been able to actually produce a change in people's lives. No, he acknowledges that this Christian ministry is something which is the result of God's grace and work. He's entirely dependent upon God 
And so the third mark of faithful Christian ministry has to be that this is not a matter of self-confidence, but of dependence upon God himself. And so Paul writes in verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Those words are really strong, aren't they? He says, we are not competent to claim anything for ourselves. He's not able to say that he has accomplished anything by his own cleverness or initiative, but everything is through the work of God through him. And the reason why that Paul renounces all self-confidence is because the work that he's involved in is something which only the Spirit of God can actually accomplish. He's already alluded to it, this work of writing on people's hearts, this work of changing people's lives is something which human beings cannot do. It's something which only God can do. And so in verse 6, he explains that this, this ministry that he's been given, the essence of this new covenant ministry is something which is supernatural. It's the work of the Spirit of God writing in people's lives. And so he says it's not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, long ago, God gave his instructions, the law, at Mount Sinai in order to guide his people into how they should live. That was a remarkable gift and a remarkable ministry. And we look at the next section in 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to expand on it, the contrast between the glory of that ministry given at Sinai with the glory of the ministry that he's been given. But now Paul is thinking about that contrast and how wonderful that contrast is because God had not just given the instructions to people, but through this new covenant ministry, God was actually changing people's lives. And again and again in the Old Testament, when you read those scriptures, God promised that he would go beyond simply giving people the letter of instruction to actually producing a transforming work in their lives. And so in Jeremiah 31, in passages like that, Paul, God says that he's going to put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts so that all of God's people will actually be genuinely transformed through the Spirit. And it's not going to be a case that you're going to have some of God's people that are actually unregenerate, but that all of God's people are actually born again, who have been transformed through the work of the Spirit. The problem wasn't that there was anything wrong with the Old Covenant as such. The, the Old Covenant, the instructions that God gave in the Old Testament, were good, holy, important. The problem was the material that God had to work with. Our hearts were so sinful and so wrapped up in ourselves that only the transforming work of God could actually set us free to be obedient to God. And so the coming of the Spirit in the day of Pentecost is the mark of a new era. It's a mark of a change in the way God is working because he's sending his Spirit as a sign that he is transforming his people to bring them the the empowering presence which could actually lead them to live lives which are pleasing to him. But this end-time, life-transforming work of the Spirit is not something which human beings can bring about. Occasionally, some preachers have said that revival and, and conversion is something which you can bring about through the right psychological techniques and through the right ways of organizing things. Charles Finney, a famous evangelist a few centuries ago, has written books about you know, do the right thing. You'll pack the place out and you can announce two weeks beforehand that there's going to be a revival. 
that's the kind of thing that Paul actually speaks against because Paul's claim is that with the new covenant ministry, it's a work of God. It's not something that we just plan and say, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. We discharge our, our responsibility and God does the work of writing in people's hearts. And that's something that we cannot do. And so Paul renounces all claims to self-confidence and says that only God can do it. And again, we need to apply this to ourselves because only those who are dependent upon God should deserve our attention, should actually gain our ear. And when a preacher comes along and tries to claim that, you know, do these certain things, do the right techniques, and you'll have success in your Christian ministry or in gospel preaching, then you need to look at that very skeptically and say, actually, true Christian ministry is that which is dependent utterly upon God for success. And that applies in our lives as well. Sometimes we think to ourselves, just if we've got the right techniques and if we do the right things, then we're going to have this really successful, flourishing, blessed life. And actually, we discover that the way God works is through his grace and initiative. And it's not just through doing the right things and God's like a genie in a bottle and he just does everything as we want it to do. Rather, we are entirely dependent upon God and even we're sharing the gospel with our friends or our family or those that we come into contact with the results that are produced are not down to how effective we are yes we seek to be faithful and effective but it's not ultimately down to technique it's down to the work of the spirit of God so then Paul Having presented these marks of faithful Christian ministry, he leads us to this stark conclusion that only ministry which demonstrates the life-transforming power of the Spirit of God through this new covenant ministry brought about through humility and suffering and pain can actually claim to be genuine. The super apostles, they look at Paul, They look at his ministry and they say, that's not much, is it? Look at the way he suffers. Look at his humiliation. Is that what God wants? And Paul says, that's the way that God works. He is, as he thinks of himself, a captive led in Christ's triumphal procession. And many people will look on and think that that's disgusting. But for those who have eyes to see it, For those who can smell what is really taking place in Paul's life, he is being led by Christ the victor to triumph. And yes, it's through humiliation now, but one day it will end in glory. And that is his only claim to being faithful to the responsibility that God had given to him. And so Paul calls us today not to be deceived by the external trappings of success or blessing, but to see what God is doing through his spirit and to recognize where he is really at work in the lives of his people. May God help us then. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that even in the midst of our weakness, small in number, small in what we can accomplish by ourselves. We thank you 